Welcome to the Lucky Titan Podcast. Here you will learn how to fill your favorite platform with tons of your dream customers from some of the world's top entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Josh Tapp. Now let's get started. What's up, everybody? Josh Tapp here again, and welcome back to the Lucky Titan Podcast. And today we're here with Ron Carr, which I mean, realistically, this guy doesn't even need an intro. Legendary guy. I mean, this guy's written some amazing books, his most recent one being The Velocity Mindset, which I really want to dive into today, talking really about scaling pains, right? When we enter into that scaling mode of business, which you all know, as I plainly bring this up over and over again on the show, is that we've had some serious scaling pains in our company and growth pains. And so I'm excited, Ron, to have you here to talk through some of those. And hopefully through this conversation, we can help our listeners who are having a lot of the same issues overcome the same problems. So first off, excited to have you here, Ron. Say what's up Thank to everybody you. and we'll hop in. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. It's exciting to be here with you and your listeners. <laughs> well, we are excited to have you here. And I just have to tell everybody here too, is I had to cancel on Ron twice, which is like completely against my religion, <laughs> my personal moral code. And he's still being a great guy and coming back here on the show. So I'm excited to have you here, Ron. So Ron, you said something in our pre-interview. You said, Josh, you need to manage outcomes, not tasks. Can you dive into that a little bit? Because from a managerial perspective, I'm like, I mean, what's the difference, right? So that's a big theme of the velocity mindset. So if I ask you, what's the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word velocity, that word is? Speed. Speed. And that's what most people think, right? Right. But if that's all you have, you don't have velocity. You're probably going to wind up with burnout. Let me give you an example. A lot of us are run by our to-do list, tasks. And we're busy, busy, busy every day doing all the tasks. And sometimes we're so busy, we don't even have a chance for lunch. And at the end of the day... We sit there exhausted, but we're perplexed because we checked off all the tasks, but yet we didn't move the needle forward. Yeah. Too many people are task oriented. And that's one of the biggest things that strips your velocity. You need to be purpose oriented. That's outcome based. What are the outcomes you're looking to achieve? Whether it's a sales call, what is the goal of this call? Most people have the wrong goals in their minds. That's why they get to the wrong results. If it's for a year, a new product launch, whatever it is, what is the outcome? Why is that so important? It's so important because that's what drives your decision-making process. And you'll make better decisions. And then you'll do a better job at prioritizing the tasks that need to be done that are germane to the outcome. Otherwise, if you're just task-oriented, you're simply going to do the next task that comes up, not looking at the outcome. You'll complete that task, but you're not moving the needle. Let's look at pilots. You go to Newark Airport, you want to go to Miami, and you get to the airport and you go to the pilot where we're going. He goes, wherever the winds take us. Would you stay on that plane? Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. The pilot starts with the end in sight first. They say, we want to go to Miami. They work their way back. They look at two or three waypoints that they know if they fly over, they're on their way. They factor in potential obstacles, storms, winds, and they come up with the safest and fastest flight plan to get to Miami. I want your listeners to start with the end in sight for every project, for every year, whatever they're looking at, and let that end in sight guide the decisions that they make and the tasks and when they perform them. If they do that, they'll achieve greater success in a shorter period of time, and they'll achieve success when in the past they may have failed. You know, Ron, that actually brings up another question with that, because I feel like there's two categories of people, right? You have the people who 
set goals or seeking outcomes that are a little too short-sighted. And then you have people like me, like I'm shooting way too far, way too fast. And I have a hard time like breaking the steps down. So do you mind talking to those two and explaining like how to actually set an outcome? (laughs) Yeah. So an outcome is your destiny. What do you want to create for yourself? An outcome has got to have passion. It's got to jazz you because not everything is going to be easy and you're going to have a lot of failure along the way. And if you don't have that passion to keep picking you back up after you fall down, uh, it's going to fall short. So I don't know what that, I always say, don't go for something too small because you're wasting your time. Go for something bigger. But if you go for something too big and totally unrealistic, then you can also set yourself up for failure. And there has to be a thing called measured growth. You know, I was speaking to one owner one time and I said, so, you know, where do you want to go? And he wants to grow at a double digit, a high double digit number every year. And I'm going, well, you're thinking about the revenue you're going to get, but can you support that growth? Do you have the infrastructure? Do you have the resources, including the cash to fund the labor and everything else? And if you don't, then you have to measure it because what's most important is that you meet your objectives. If you keep falling short, there's nothing more demotivational than that. So you have to look at the realities of the world, the realities of your situation, and then put them together and come up with something that's going to make you stretch, that's going to make you move the needle forward in a way that makes sense for what you want to achieve and what the world needs. Yeah, I love that because it is looking at more of, I use your destiny, right? But it's that change that you're really wanting to make. And that's I guess. Well, yes. And here's where people make a mistake. And I can give you a, a case, an example, a case study that's in the book, The Velocity Mindset. So we say start with the end in sight first. A lot of people can't figure that out. Right. One way to back that in, back into it, is think about what you don't want. And many times it's the opposite. Right. But when people make the biggest mistake, we tell people to start with a clean piece of paper. Forget the past, forget what you know is possible, because that's a story in your mind. Write down. If you can create the destiny of your dreams, what would it look like? Just put it down. Don't decide on it. Just put it down. What most people do is they don't do that. They'll take that clean piece of paper, but they'll start bringing the past into it. What they think they can, cannot do, limitations, where they failed, and then their destiny is tainted. You follow what I'm saying, Josh, right? Absolutely. And it's tainted to the point where all they're going to do is recreate the past. Yeah. (laughs) Because they're going after the same thing. Okay. Yeah. If you truly want to create a new mark, a new differentiation in the marketplace, a new whatever, you have to start with the end in sight. And the thing that separates people, the successful entrepreneurs from the not so successful entrepreneurs the thing that separates leaders from non-leaders, and I'm not just talking managers, it's leaders, is that if you do that right, you're not going to have the answers at the same time as to how to do it. And people don't like that. People feel that as a leader, you have to have the answers. And how can you? If you just came up with the idea, how is it possible to have the answers at that? And that's not a leader's job. A leader's job is to set the course where we're going and then embark on asking the right questions that will lead to the answers that they need on how to get there. But it's not to have the answers up front, but that's where a lot of people are uncomfortable with. And that's why they shoot too low or they recreate the past. Yeah. Well, and yeah, that's a really good point. I'm curious with that. 
from a team perspective, right? So as the team is growing and like you said, the leader is the person who feels like they need to have all of the answers. How are, how are you helping employees get to the point that they feel like they can come with answers without just blindly trusting your opinion? Because we've run into that a lot in my company where they just like, oh yeah, Josh just knows what he's doing. So let's just follow him. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, sometimes you got to challenge me. <laughs> so I, I'll give you a, te- this was a sales example the, where we helped the client change the way an industry bought in this industry, which was the mining industry. Um, clients bought on supply agreements three years. Every three years is a bid for best price. And it was all price-based. And I did work for this multinational company that had a division that was catering to the copper industry, copper mines. And they spent 20 years creating a new reagent that cut in half the cost of mining copper. And when they came out with the product in the 1980s, it was the perfect storm for them, it positive. Copper mines are going bankrupt. They got this great product, cuts in half the cost of mining copper, the sales shoot up. So much so they start getting a huge market share. And then the other two major players see what's happening. They re-engineer their version of the product, not as good as my client, but then they try to commoditize it by beating it on price, right? Right. So I spoke for that division and the VP says, you know, we got the largest copper mining company going up for bid. And they claim that our quality is three out of three, meaning they're the worst, which is BS. It was just a positioning statement just to get them to lower their expectations. Right. Anyway, they had a meeting with the sourcing team the following week. And they said, can you fly out to Tucson and help us get ready? I said, sure. So there's me and two people in the room, two executives. And the first question I asked them is, what do you want as a result of my intervention? And they said they want to win the bid. Now, they're talking from the past, right? That's how they always did it. And I said, I don't think you heard the question. Take out a clean piece of paper, and I want you to answer from the heart. What do you really want? What's your passion? What do you really want to create for yourself and for this industry? And they started saying, well, why do we have to bid? All right, we got the best product. We saved this industry. I said, so what do you want? We want a negotiated deal. I said, okay, how long? Usually do three years, 10 years, life for the patents. I said, okay, you have 25% of the demand. How much do you want? 75. So let me repeat what you said. You don't want to bid. You want to negotiate a deal. 75%, not 25% of the demand. And you want it for 10 years, not three. And then I said, you could really do that if you want. But you have to understand that will take a different set of actions than to simply win a bid. So now we got out that destiny, right? It wasn't based on the past because they've never done that before and all that, right? Yeah, yeah. And then they asked me the next question. They said, how are we going to do it? And my answer, I have no clue. And they're going, what? <laughs> what do we pay you for, Ron? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I said, how can I have the answers if we haven't done the due diligence yet? It's a failed expectation. Now, I know in my heart of hearts, having been doing this for so long, that you're not even doing 10% of what I'm going to propose. And I believe there's a lot of room here. Are we going to get exactly what you want? I can't guarantee that but you're going to be well on your way. So nothing's guaranteed in life. So we started looking at that outcome and we let that outcome drive all actions. So I would go out there every quarter at the beginning of the meeting. The first thing we did at that meeting was say, okay, what information do we have? We put on the walls. What information don't we have? And whatever was key information that we had to find out, their next order of business was go find that out in the next quarter. 
And we come back every quarter and we put the new information up and the picture would be painted. And we see where our points of power are. We see what's going on. And then we see where we're having issues. Now, that company had five mines, three very small mines that didn't even want to deal with my client because they had their own, you know, supplier. Yeah. But there were two big mines and one big mine was so big that if they just got a sole source with that one particular mine, that would be 75% of the total demand of the company. Now, I say that because as you start thinking about this thing and we look at the information, I'm reading the Wall Street Journal one day and I'm seeing how Conoco just signed a sole source with that mine. And I call my client up and I said, look, you got new purchasing agents in the home office and centrally and yes, and they want to decentralize the purchasing. He goes, yeah. And this one mine you're saying can give you the whole demand plus you and them grew up together in the industry. They like you, you like them, they know you, you they use your product. And guess what? They just signed a sole source for Conoco. <laughs> so we should treat the outcome. Let's not do 75% of the whole company. Let's go for 100% of this mine and you still get that result. Right. But while that outcome is in your head, everything is related to that, the actions, the questions, and then you're open to new opportunities. If that wasn't in my mind, I wouldn't have read that article in Conoco, right? And everything starts to fall into place. So the end result for your clients, basically, that client of mine closed a $200 million contract, negotiated for 10 years and 18 months after we started. Jeez, that is awesome. <laughs> all right. I didn't change the product. I'm not a chemist. All right. But we're not selling a product. We were selling a partnership. To do that, you have to know everything about your customer. You have to know where they're trying to go and what they're trying to do and what they perceive your weaknesses are. And so, for example, we know that in a mine, they can set the price, right? And somebody exchanges. Right. Yeah. So the only thing that they can do for the profitability is keep costs down. So in the mines, Caterpillar would have men on site. So if a truck broke down, if a tire failed, they can fix it immediately. So they called me up one day and said, we got it. We want to be like Caterpillar. I said, no, Caterpillar is a benchmark. We want to become the next Caterpillar. So that became a basis for one of our meetings. And I said, okay, if we put a man on site, what could we do with that person? And we came up with 20 things, benefits that we could do to help the client. And so I said, okay, now look, we're going to offer that man on site for free initially because we got to get them to like it. But sometimes giving some for free is harder than having to pay for it. So that was a hard sell. But when they finally bought that concept, they loved the guy. He was so valuable. And we just gave it a name. We called it a Mindsight Services Program. And I told my client to trademark it. And they said, why? I said, because that's your differentiation. And after we put the man on site and they loved him, when the bid came out, what well, was a big part of the bid? Mindsight Services Program. Right. And when the other two multinationals queried them and said, what's a Mindsight Services Program? They said, well, you obviously don't have it. And that gave them permission to pull the bid back and enter into a negotiation with my client. And that's the cornerstone of how they got that deal. Jeez, that is a cool story. What I love about that story is you didn't come with the answers initially, right? Sometimes they just no. end up falling in your lap. because, Do you feel like it's just because your mindset is open enough that to accept them when they come or, or is it? Well, the answers come from the questions you ask and then they beget additional questions and then the picture paints and then you start looking where you value. It's like that whole thing started falling to shape. Their biggest supporters was that big mind. They grew up together. That was a point of power. And then all of a sudden they did Conoco. 
So now they have history of doing that. So that led to the next decision and the next decision. It just fell into place. And then another obstacle came up. My client was the only one who had manufacturing in Ireland. They were offshore. Everybody else was onshore. And so they can never get that client to go to Ireland and do a factory inspection. They finally got them to go because they were interested. And they had a great trip. They're in County Cork waiting to fly out. It's all fogged in. And the customer said to my client while they're waiting for the plane, just out of curiosity, if a 747 fell out of the sky and wiped out your plant in County Cork, where does that leave us? So all of a sudden, I'm out there for, for my quarterly meeting. The VP never says that to me. You know when he says it to me? As he's driving me back to the airport after the meeting, <laughs> one block from the airport. I said, pull the car over. And he goes, what's wrong? I said, why do you tell me this now? Why don't you tell me this is the beginning of the meeting? I said, that's an opportunity for you. He goes, what do you mean? Well, the World Trade Center, the first bombing in 94, right? And all these financial institutions put their pants down because they had all the trading and everything in the same facility. They learned from that, put all the back office across the river in New Jersey and have redundancy in case something happens. You have one plan. You call them up and you say, I heard what you said. And as part of the deal, we're going to create a disaster recovery plan. We know that the ships on the water will have three months supply. We know that we'll have supply on shore here. And that even led to us coming up with an idea to build a storage tank so they can have three months here. Three months in the water gives them six months. And if something, God forbid, happens, they have a plan in place where they can get the equipment, the facilities up and running within six months. And they shared that plan and that took away the risk for the client and they went ahead with the deal. But all this came out of questions and comments. Right. You know, no one had a Ouija board. But to make it simple for your listeners, I remember this very well. I have one daughter, 28, you know. But when my ex-wife was pregnant, you know, we had to start looking at baby carriages, right? I could have sworn that I haven't seen a baby carriage for the first 32 years of my life. But then all of a sudden at that moment, I see them everywhere on every block, yeah. two in a block. And why? It's only because I'm thinking about it. It's in my mind. So that's why I'm open to those opportunities. What you think about is what you're open to. Right. What you want to make happen is what you're open to. That's why it's important to worry about what you want to achieve, not worry about what you can't achieve. Yeah. You have so many quotable things in here. I'm going to have to stop writing them and uh, <laughs> just go listen to it afterwards. I love that. So, you know, everybody, you've been listening to this. I mean, such an awesome story. A lot of great advice given here by Ron. So make sure you just save this interview, go back and listen to it again, listen to it slower, get, get what you need out of this interview because it's been very valuable. And go check out The Velocity Mindset. Guys, this is a fantastic book. I'm waiting for it to show up at my house right now. Such a such a great book I've heard from many people. So I'm excited to see it for myself. And Ron, I want to ask you, before we hop off here today, could you give us one final parting piece of guidance for our audience? One good takeaway for them? Yeah, we tend to live our lives based on the stories we tell ourselves. So whenever someone says something to us or something happens to us, we create a story as to what it means. And most of the time we're wrong. Stories are also fueled by emotion. That's a good story. It has emotion. Now, if it's fueled by positive emotion and it's pushing you forward, run with the story. But if the story is fueled by negative emotion and it's holding you back, the good news is whoever wrote that story can rewrite it. But you can't write it or rewrite it when you're in the middle of an emotional bath. Yeah. I'll give you an example, and it's in the book. My first sales job was selling copiers, 1980. 
transformation. They went from liquid toner to plain toner. I mean, dry toner, simple cartridge, in and out, you don't destroy your clothes anymore. And they're, they're seducing me, Royal Business Machines. Beautiful copy, 15 crisp copies a minute. Can it collate in six months? Can it duplicate in six months? Go out and sell it. You're going to have a ball. So I took the job. Now, for three months, I couldn't sell anything. And after my butt got black and blue from all the doors hitting me in the back, I decided to pause. Remember, sometimes if something's not working, pause, you'll get more velocity. And I had stories in my mind. I can't sell to save my life. I can't sell without a duplicator because they keep comparing me to the big Xerox machine on the third floor. I had all these reasons why I couldn't do it. So I decided to have a board meeting with myself, me, myself, and I. Went to a diner in New Jersey, sat down, and I said, what's going on? I go in, I say, I want to sell a copier. And they say, well, can it duplicate? No. Can it collate? No. Come back when you have that. So I started thinking about, well, what does a copier really do anyway? And I realized it's nothing more but part of the communication process in a company. So I decided to have a different conversation. I didn't know it was going to work. So the next company I went into, I said, ma'am, the office manager, would you agree that the copy is nothing more in your communication process? She goes, absolutely. And I said, what are your three biggest challenges when it comes to that? She goes, oh, my God. It's like all of a sudden I'm a therapist and she's laying on my couch. She goes, can we talk? Sally or Joe has to get up from the, from the desk on the first floor, make one copy. By the time they chit-chat and get to the staircase, go to the third floor, wait online behind all these big jobs and come back, it could take two hours. I said, how often does that happen? She goes, try the equivalent of two full-time employees. I go, wow, how would you like them back? And she's looking at me, a copy of salesman. She goes, how the hell are you going to get them back for me? I said, simple. I'm not competing with that big machine on the third floor. It's a great machine. Keep it. I'm here to fill in your gaps. As a matter of fact, you shouldn't buy one of these. You should buy three, one for every floor. For those one and two copy jobs, you don't get those two full-time employees back. And she bought three machines that day. So the message that you're asking me to leave for your audience, you want to grow your businesses and scale, don't compete, create. If all you're doing is competing against everybody else on price and everything else is a zero-sum game and you lose your passion, create, fill in the gaps that people have that they're looking to solve. That was the basis for how Apple started. Think about it. When Steve Jobs was there with the first little iPod and then he wants to get into the phone, he said, take out your phone, which most people had the BlackBerry. He goes, what do you wish it had that it doesn't have? He started with his engineers and they started making a master list of all the things they wish it had. And they went out to produce it. And guess what? They were right. If they had it as human beings, everybody else probably had the same wishes. And that's how the iPhone got started. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Lucky Titan podcast. If you learned anything from this or any other episode, make sure you rate it and share it with another entrepreneur who could help. Thanks again. And I'll catch you on the flip side.